move, move into it here quickly. Richard Dawkins, you've probably heard of this gentleman, probably one of the top five most well-known atheists in the world, a professor of zoology at Oxford University. He said, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. This is not atypical of the evolutionary community. That's how they look at those of us who believe in a literal creation. We're again, as I said last night, ignorant yahoos, hillbillies that are beholden to ancient myths and fables that have no scientific backing. But in order for something to be a fact and known to be true, and they believe that evolution is that, in order for it to be that, it has to have evidence to support that. And these items on the screen are the typical evidences that are given in support of evolution. So if you were to turn in a biology textbook or life science textbook, for example, it will list some or all of these. Uh, Every textbook I've ever seen um, in in a biology textbook, at least in a secular school, has these items listed as the proof, the evidence that that proves evolution. And again, the evolutionist says, hey, this is, this is factual, this is proven. If you don't believe it, then, then you're just ignorant, and here's why. Well, we've got materials that address each one of the items on the screen that show that they actually do not hold water whenever you study them closely. Um, and, but uh, we're only going to take time to look at a couple of those tonight, the two more, I would say, prominent Uh, examples that are used as alleged proofs for evolution. And that comes from the fossil record and dating methods. This is a chart that I ran across online a few months ago. Very typical, again, of the evolutionary community. Very annoying and uh, uh, just makes you kind of just irritated when you read something like this, especially if you've read much on this matter of evolution. Evolution, we have the fossils, we win. So they believe that if you have nothing else, the fossil record itself proves evolution is true. You guys that are creationists, you lose. You don't have evidence for your theory, and, uh, and therefore you lose this, this, this debate. So let's look at some of this evidence that supposedly proves evolution. First of all, if, what would you expect to see if evolution were true? If the literal account of creation is true. If Genesis 1 is true, uh, as it reads in Genesis 1 literally, then there should be a notable absence of any kind of transitional fossils in the fossil record. They shouldn't be there. There shouldn't be creatures that are one quarter ape and three quarters human or half, you know, lizard, half snake or something. Those shouldn't be there. Whenever the fossils show up in the fossil record, they should be already fully formed. They shouldn't be in a state of transition. But if evolution is true, then there should be billions of these transitional fossils that link all of the species on earth all the way back to this single-celled organism millions and millions of years ago, which everything supposedly evolved from. There should be loads of this evidence. Evolutionists realize and admit that the fossil record should reveal these kind of transitional forms. The problem is that that evidence does not exist. Darwin himself realized that. Way back in The Origin of Species, he said, the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed must be truly enormous. 
Geology surely does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be argued against this theory. The explanation lies, I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. So he hoped with 150 more years of further exploration, further study of the geologic column, that we would find all of these missing fossils that would prove his, his theory to be true. But notice from the words of Darwin himself, this is perhaps the most obvious and serious objection which can be argued against this theory. And it is a major problem. And 150 years more of study has not helped his problem. Evolutionary paleontologist from Harvard, Stephen Jay Gould, very famous, prominent uh, paleontologist and evolutionist. He said, the absence of fossil evidence for intermediary stages between major transitions in organic design, indeed our inability, even in our imagination, to construct functional intermediates in many cases, has been a persistent and nagging problem for gradualistic accounts of evolution. Major admission by this prominent evolutionist. He went on to say, all paleontologists know that the fossil record it contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. Now again, we ask the question, which model does that support? If you believe in the creation model, it should be characteristically abrupt. In other words, there should be distinct kinds that show up in the fossil record. And the, tran- the differences between, for instance, apes and humans is very, the change in the fossil record is going to be abrupt. In other words, it's distinct. We've got distinct creatures. There's no gradualistic um, account of our origin. So again, even by the words of the evolutionists themselves, this is evidence. The fossil record supports the creation model. He went on to say, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is you're not going to turn in a geology book or a life science book or biology textbook and see the textbook writers admitting this problem. And so it's a trade secret. The only way that you're going to uh, read about this is is by going into the evolutionary documents yourself and reading what they have to say. Like, for instance, the natural... Uh, magazine Natural History. You're not going to read that in most textbooks. You've got to go get into the mix between the evolutionists themselves, the ones that are higher up in the know, like, like this gentleman, Stephen Jay Gould, in order to hear their discussion on this matter. It's the trade secret, he says, of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference, however reasonable, not the evidence of the fossils. So the tips and nodes of their branches. So you're picturing a, a tree, a bush, is how they try to say now evolution is, and, and it's growing out, and you have just the tips and nodes. Guess what? That's just the species. The tips and nodes of the evolutionary tree are just the distinct species. So in other words, they don't have any evidence of transitional forms. They only have the tips and nodes. That is, once again, if you were to just take the evidence and look at what the fossil record says what you would find is the creation model is what is actually supported by the evidence. David B. Kitts, the late evolutionary uh, geologist, paleontologist, professor of geology and the history of science at Oklahoma University, he said, despite the bright promise that paleontology provides a means of seeing evolution, it's presented some nasty difficulties for evolutionists, the most notorious of which is the presence of gaps in the fossil record. 
Evolution requires intermediate forms between species, and paleontology does not provide them. So again, if evolution were true, then there should be an abundance, billions, really, of these transitional fossils in existence. If, if evolutionary theory is true, that should be the case, and the evolutionists admit this, and yet they also admit that, hey, it's not there. The evidence isn't there. But as I mentioned last night, they also start with the assumption that science will only involve natural, natural things. The supernatural will not even be considered. So God cannot exist. That would be unscientific. So therefore, evolution has to be true. So it really doesn't matter if the fossil record supports it or not. It has to be true. So we have to come up with another explanation for what may be going on here. And I don't remember if I talk about that a little bit later. If not, I'll mention it at the, at the later point. Kate Wong, evolutionist and senior science writer for Scientific American. She said the origin of our genus, Homo, is based on meager evidence. So there's not much to work with. They come out and admit that. There's a notable gap in the fossil record hooking the various forms of life. Mariette de Cristina, editor-in-chief of Scientific American, she recently admitted that uh, pieces of our ancient forebears are generally are hard to come by. However, scientists working to interpret our evolution often have had to make do with studying a fossil toe bone here or a jaw bone there. So quite an admission. This is what they have to work with, a fossil toe bone and, and jaw bone, single fossils that they then have to use as their evidence to support evolutionary theory. Richard Lewontin, a research professor at the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard, considered to be one of their, their top scientists. He said, the main problem is the poor fossil record. Despite a handful of hominid fossils stretching back four million years or so, we can't be sure that any of them are on the main ancestral line to us. Many of them could have been evolutionary side branches. So notice that admission. We can't be sure that any of them are transitional fossils. So according to these prominent evolutionists themselves, there is not one fossil that can be used as proof that we evolve from an ape. So remember, I showed that list of here is the evidence that supposedly proves evolution. And this is one of the more prominent ones given. And yet the evolutionists that are in the know, that are the ones really working on this stuff, they actually come out and admit, guess what? We don't even have one fossil that can substantiate evolution. You think that's going to bother them? No, because again, they're comfortable with the assumption that anything supernatural is hillbilly and yahoo, and you can't consider that. So evolution must be true. And so again, it doesn't matter what the fossil record says. We've just got to interpret things through the, the lens of evolution. I would suggest to you that's, that's a biased approach. That's not scientific. That's not allowing the evidence to lead you wherever it might, wherever it might lead you. That is uh, making inappropriate assumptions you know, assumptions have to be made in science, and assumptions can be, can be fine and good and important. But the important, is to make, the, the important thing is to make assumptions that are reasonable assumptions, that can go with the evidence and that don't significantly affect the outcome. Uh, in this case, um, the idea that we evolved from apes by that assumption. Lyle Watson, writing in Science Digest, very well-known evolutionary biologist and zoologist, he said... The fossils that decorate our family tree are so scarce that they're still more scientists than specimens. The remarkable fact is that all the physical evidence we have for human evolution can still be placed with room to spare inside a single coffin. Now, I think that's pretty ironic um, because this, uh, this, whole, uh, this whole 
discussion here really does spell death for evolutionary theory. You've got to have these transitional fossils in order for Darwin's evolution to be true. And yet they are not there. Well, let's uh, take a little bit of time here and see what's in the coffin. This list on the screen comprises the standard evidence that is given by evolutionists for the evolution of man from some ape-like creature. The evolutionary scenario has no chance of succeeding if it doesn't have these transitional creatures. And this is what we have on the screen. Let's take a look at a few of these now. The first one, Neanderthal man, very famous missing link fossils that supposedly are somewhere on this line between this ape-like ancestor of ours and ourselves, supposed to be this missing link. However, after examining the fossil remains of the very famous skeleton of Neanderthal man, Dr. A.J.E. Cave proved that the Neanderthal man was actually nothing more than an old man who suffered from arthritis. Not something you hear about much. Dr. Cave noted that every Neanderthal child's skull that had been examined to that, that point apparently had been affected by severe rickets. In children, it is common for rickets to uh, produce a large head due to the late closure of the epiphysis and fontanelles. As Eric Trinkhaus, evolutionary anthropologist of Washington University in St. Louis, one of the world's foremost authorities on uh, the Neanderthals, he concluded de detailed comparisons of Neanderthal skeletal remains with those of modern humans have shown that there is nothing in Neanderthal anatomy that conclusively indicates locomotor, manipulative, intellectual, or linguistic abilities inferior to those of modern humans. So Neanderthal's anatomy, indistinguishable from modern humans. They looked exactly like us. And on top of that, modern fo um, human fossils remains have been found near the remains of Neanderthals that actually dated as older than the alleged dates of these Neanderthals. So how could the modern humans evolve from the Neanderthals if Neanderthals date to a time after modern human beings came along? Really what we're talking about here is how deep these fossils were found in the geologic record. That's really it. These are modern humans. The question ultimately comes down to, is it possible for a modern human to have been buried further down in the fossil record? That's the question. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Java man. Back in 1891, evolutionists found uh, fossilized teeth, the upper part of a skull, and a thigh bone on the banks of the Solo River in the Dutch Indies, and assumed that they were from some kind of transitional creature. From those few bones, they presumptuously drew this creature on the screen, this creature um, that they called uh, Java man. So you think you can really come up with a picture like this based on a few bones like that? You think you can do that? No, you can't. You can't do that. But that will, you're not gonna, that's not going to stop them. Over time, scientists found that the leg, and, leg bone and the teeth were actually from a modern human, and the skull cap was actually from a monkey. And a few years after this find, while Java Man was actually still very famous, in 1926, Professor Iberlein of the Dutch Medical Service, he found what appeared to be a complete skull in the same area that this Java man had been discovered, and seemingly like this alleged Java man skull. Again, the fossil was hailed quickly by the media as more evidence for this transitional creature until time ran a retraction in 1927. I found, it, I found this in, a, in the Time magazine, 1927, a tiny little retraction. Uh, I think it was even on the back page of the magazine. In the retraction, the Smithsonian Institute said that the skull was actually the kneecap of an elephant. So definitely no transitional creature here. 
1912, a doctor found a jawbone and a portion of a skull in a gravel pit in England, and they assumed that these were fossils from a transitional creature that they called Piltdown Man. From these two items, evolutionists made a skull to show what they thought this transitional creature, uh, his head would have looked like, but in 1953, Piltdown Man was actually found to be a fake, a fraud, a hoax. The skull fossil was found to be from a modern human, and the jawbone was actually found to be from an ape, and they had pushed the two together. And in fact, the fossilized teeth had been changed on purpose. They had been filed down and treated chemically and, uh, in order to make them look old. And so definitely no transitional fossil here either. In 1922, newspapers printed a picture of a male and female human-like creature that the evolutionists had drawn based on one fossil tooth that they had found. And they claimed, hey, this tooth proves that this is some kind of prehistoric transitional creature towards humans. Once again, isn't it amazing what you can come up with um, from one tooth? This is one tooth, just different angles of the same tooth. They called it Nebraska Man. And within five years, scientists had decided the tooth was actually from a wild pig, not a transitional creature. You're noticing the, uh, the protocol here of what happens. Somebody makes a quick find, they, they broadcast it too quickly, and uh, the, everybody picks it up and says, hey, this is proof of evolution. It starts being taught in the schools. Everybody believes evolution is true. Some time goes by, they'll find another fossil. Hey, we've got more evidence of evolution. And then they go back and figure out, wait a minute, this one here was wrong. But that's okay, because we still got this other evidence. So we move on, and they find another fossil. And then they find out, oh, this one was wrong. But that's okay, because we already got this evidence. That's the trend. That's the trend you see in this. Rhodesian man, found in zinc, a zinc mine in 1921 and displayed at the British Museum of Natural History for several years, but these, the fossilized hips had been crushed, which caused the displayers to portray this creature as stooped over. But once again, years later, when actual anatomists examined the fossils, Rhodesian man was found to be merely a modern human being. Heidelberg man, named Homo heidelbergensis, based off of a single lower jawbone, pictured on the left on the screen and compared to a regular modern-day human jawbone. You notice the primary difference between the two jawbones is ultimately size. Heidelberg man was recognized by his founder, Daniel Hartman, to be very human-like, and so he knew he belonged in our genus, in the genus Homo. And according to Donald Johansson, who's a, a, an American paleoanthropologist, and uh, the uh, discoverer of the famous Lucy fossils, which you may have heard about, Hartman decided to give him a special name and put him in a species of his own, in spite of its strong similarity to the human jawbone. Of course, I would suggest that, hey, just because it's bigger, it doesn't mean it's not human. Andre the Giant was still a human. I'd like to see his jawbone up next to a modern human. Or how about Goliath? We may have actually been finding some proof here of some of the giants of the, of the uh, Old Testament. In 1979, what appeared to be a collarbone was found at a site named Sahabi in Libya, and some scientists believe that it belonged to a primitive ape man. Once again, after further investigation, the collarbone was actually found to be the fossilized rib of a sea mammal that was similar to a dolphin. So again, you're noticing this, how hard it is for them to find legitimate transitional fossils. It's no wonder that they come out and admit, hey, we really don't have one fossil that we can claim conclusively proves that humans evolved from this ape-like creature. You'd think that if they ever did exist, they wouldn't be so hard to find proof. 
Then in the early 1980s, a portion of a skull, just a skull cap, was found near the Spanish village of Orsay. Evolutionists, again, were very quick to announce this fragment was from an ancient human child. And from that small fragment in green on the screen, they constructed an entire human that they called this Orsay man. And later, the bone was conceded as likely being the skull cap of a six-month-old donkey. Handyman, or Homo habilis, is the creature that Lucy supposedly evolved into, a three-foot-tall ape. Once again, evolutionists will construct these models and paintings without enough evidence, grandiosely speculating and conjecturing. A fairly complete fossil of Handyman was discovered that indicated that this creature was simply an ape and in no way related to humans. The skeleton of Handyman is just as primitive as Lucy, which is supposedly two million years older than Handyman. So if evolution were true in two million years worth of time, we should expect to see significant progress in evolving towards man. And yet Lucy is just as primitive as Handyman. So again, no missing link here either. What about the elusive Peking man in the 1920s and 1930s? A few fossils were found near Beijing, China, and evolutionists were quick again to call these fossil these fossil transitional creatures and proof of evolution. And they dated these fossils, of course, using evolutionary dating techniques as being between 300,000 and 800,000 years ago. But scientists have found conflicting evidence from the same site because in 1933, several fossils of modern humans were also discovered, which weren't supposed to be on the scene yet. Bottom line, evolutionists will never know for sure because within a few years, in 1941, these fossils mysteriously went missing. Gao Zing is a paleontologist and a member of this committee to search for the skull caps. He said, quote, we don't know where the bones are. They may well have been destroyed, but we have to look. And again, I find that ironic because the more that evolution is examined, the more its alleged evidence goes mysteriously missing. What about Cro-Magnon man? probably heard about him a lot in the media. What's all the talk about this fellow? Is he proof of evolution? Evolutionists claim that Cro-Magnons were the first creatures with a skeleton that looked modern anatomically. Recent genetic research by a team of European geneticists from the universities of Ferrara and Florence, I believe is how you pronounce that. You probably know better, Brother, brother Edwards. They showed that the Cro-Magnon uh, creatures were actually... Uh, they were actually European genetically as well, not just anatomically. Okay, so if it looked like us anatomically and they're like us genetically, then what's the difference? You know, if it looks like a duck and talks like a duck and it bleeds like a duck in this case, then it's a duck. So again, no missing link here, here either. Cro-Magnon man is just a modern man. And it's the, ultimately the question is where he's found in the geologic column and what that means. Is it possible that the columns were formed in a fast way? That's ultimately the question. And the answer that the creation scientists will say is yes. It's very possible and likely that they were formed in a fast way. But again, you notice this pattern. Very quick claims are made and retractions have to be made after time and further study and investigation is done. Over and over again, you'd think more people would catch the pattern. So that is already half of the items that, are on, on, that were on that uh, list. And we have materials at Apologetics Press which go through the remainder of these items that are on the screen. And you're going to find the same problems with all of them. They don't hold up under scrutiny, and that's why the evolutionists themselves come out and admit we just really don't have the fossil evidence. And then they say, well, you know, it's out there, we hope.
Well, that's wishful thinking. So to summarize, what's um, much, you know what, I think we probably better just skip this one because I'm not sure if we're going to have time. Let's look at some more quotes. Colin Patterson, who I believe I quoted earlier, paleontologist who served as the editor of the professional journal published by the British Museum of Natural History in London. He wrote a book, and someone responded to him and said, hey, you, you know, you've, how come you didn't put any transitional fossils in your book? And he said regarding his book, I fully agree with your comments on the lack of direct illustration of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any fossil or living, I would certainly have included them. Yet Gould and the American Museum people are hard to con- contradict when they say there are no transitional fossils. I'll lay it on the line. There is not one such fossil for which one could make a watertight argument. So again, there's not one fossil that can be used as conclusive evidence, although there should be billions, if this is true. There should be billions of these transitional creatures all throughout the fossil record, and yet there's not one that can be used. How about Kate Wong, evolutionist and senior science writer for Scientific American? I quoted earlier. She said, for decades... Paleoanthropologists have combed remote corners of Africa on hand and knee for fossils of Homo's earliest representatives. Their efforts have brought only modest gains, a jawbone here, a handful of teeth there. We've already looked at a few of those tonight. Most of the recovered fossils instead belong to either ancestral australopithecines or later members of Homo, creatures too advanced to illuminate the order in which our distinctive traits arose. With so little to go on, the origin of our genus has remained as mysterious as ever. This was just last year, so it's not like um, you know, they found something in the last couple years, the last five years, the last ten years, that refutes everything that's been said. Now, it's been 150 years since Darwin uh, ultimately initiated his version of evolutionary theory, and yet they have not been able to find these missing links, and they are missing indeed. Lord Solly Zuckerman, very famous zoologist, anatomist, and a British scientific advisor, as well as a professor at Oxford, After he studied the Australopithecine fossils for over 15 years, he admitted years ago, if man did descend from an ape-like ancestor, he did so without leaving any fossil traces of the steps of the transformation, and that is certainly still the case. Lee Berger is a paleoanthropologist, and he uh, he discovered the Australopithecus sediba fossils just in the last few years, and so he's gotten a lot of media attention for his find. We have some articles on the AP website if you're interested in looking at his find. But he actually admitted last year that the fossil record is inadequate in showing the evolution of humans. He said, we really need a better record, and it's out there. <laughs> well, I think that's what you call wishful thinking right there, because it's been 150 years And he's basically saying the same thing Darwin said 150 years ago. That's wishful thinking to say it's out there. We need more fossils. But what he is admitting is we need a better record. We have a poor record. No, we really don't have a poor record. We have a record which substantiates the creation model. That's what we have. You have a poor record in substantiating evolution. That's where your poor record is. And if you would scrap that and just go with what the evidence says... What you have is fully formed creatures the minute they show up in the fossil record. That couldn't have just happened unless you have a supernatural entity outside this universe that planted them on the planet. Make sense? That's what the, evo- that's what the evidence actually says. Mark Ridley, uh, evolutionary zoologist of Oxford, 
He said, no real evolutionist uses the fossil record as evidence in favor of the theory of evolution as opposed to special creation. And I think that's pretty ironic. And yet again, this is probably the most used evidence for evolution is the fossil record. But again, these guys that are in the know that have really looked at the evidence, they say, you know, guess what? You, you don't really want to use the fossil record. If you try to get in a debate with a creationist over this, you're going to lose because the fossil record is not going to substantiate evolution. So in truth, the fossil record simply does not support evolution. What about the dating methods? So, you know, the evolutionist believes that, hey, the universe has, it, the universe has to have been a lo- around a long time in order for evolution to happen. And if the universe has been around for as long as they believe it has been around, then definitely the creation model has got problems. Because a straightforward reading of Genesis 1, as well as an analysis of the Hebrew text, does not leave any room for evolution. So the question comes down to, what is their evidence for an old universe? And the problem with their evidence ultimately comes down to their dating techniques. The scientific techniques that they use in order to date materials, they believe, are solid evidence of an old universe. So is that true? Scientists and mathematicians, as I've already said, have to make assumptions all the time in science in order to be able to solve problems. And again, that can be okay as long as you're careful with your assumptions, the assumptions that you make. If you make a grandiose assumption that cannot be, uh, that's not a realistic assumption, then you're going to have problems in the solution to your problem, whatever the problem might be. We know from the second law of thermodynamics, which we studied last night, that the universe is running down. We're running out of usable energy. Everything is deteriorating. It's breaking down. And scientists have discovered that elements on the periodic table shown on the screen actually break down or decompose into other elements on the table over time. And this breakdown appears to be at constant rates today. So, for example, potassium breaks down into argon, uranium into lead, and rubidium into strontium. The starting element is called the parent element, and the element that it decomposes into is the daughter element. Scientists are able to measure the rate at which this this decomposition happens with an amazing degree of accuracy. But the problem is that the dating techniques um, like these on the screen become more and more inaccurate in telling the age of something the farther back they try to predict the age. In other words, they become less and less likely to predict the inaccurate age of a material, the older that object appears to be. And one of the reasons that evolutionists themselves know this is they'll date the same specimen with different techniques and get totally different answers by millions and millions of years. And the problem ultimately comes down to the assumptions upon which these dating techniques are, are made. let's take a look at, for example, some assumptions that go into the uranium-lead dating technique. As uranium decays down into lead, what kind of assumptions are made in order to date a material? Number one, the nuclear decay rate of the elements have been constant throughout history. So in other words, nothing ever occurred in history which could have sped up the decay rates over brief periods of time. Number two, no daughter element existed in the specimen being measured at the beginning of its decay. In other words, the dating technique assumes that the rock was initially completely composed of the parent element, 
like uranium in this case. So an assumption is made about the initial condition of this rock. And number three, the parent and daughter isotopes have not been altered by anything except radioactive decay. So in other words, the amount of elements present in a, in a sample have never been affected by some kind of outside force or element. So a lava flow couldn't have come along and grabbed some of this element over here and added it to this one or taken some away. Okay, so which would corrupt the measurement. So we're assuming a closed kind of system. Now, common sense tells us, really, if you think about it, that's, pretty, that's a pretty grandiose, presumptuous assumptions that are going on here. And the older a rock is, the more time there is for those assumptions to, to not have hold, uh, held, for them to have been violated. Ironically, these dating techniques really only work with a high degree of accuracy for a few thousand years which is the, what the creation model actually postulates for the age of the earth. Well, let's take a look at these assumptions and just reason through them. You know, we're, we're just taking a very cursory, you know, look at these, uh, at these issues. If you really want to get more in-depth into all of this, you can go see our website. Imagine for a moment you're walking down the sidewalk, and in front of you on the middle of the walk is this pail of water, and it's halfway filled. And you notice that water is all around the base of that pail, and you take a, a little closer look, and along the base of that bucket, you notice, hey, there's a small crack there. And, uh, and it's causing this slow leak. So you decide, I'm going to do, do an experiment. I'm just curious about this, and I want to find out when this pail was filled with water and how long it's going to take for it to be completely empty. I want to see if I can figure that out. So I take out my trusty ruler, and, you know, and we're measuring the inches of water that are in this pail. We find out it's six inches. So you continue on your walk, and on the way back home, 30 minutes later, you stop and you measure that water level again, five and a half inches. So you decide, hey, the pail is leaking a half inch every 30 minutes or one inch every hour, right? So you measure the total height of this pail. You find it's 12 inches tall, and you do the math, and you're feeling pretty, pretty proud of yourself, pretty scientific and smart, and uh, you determine this pail must have been filled with water six and a half hours ago, and it'll be empty in another five and a half hours. But there's problems with your experiment and the assumptions that you made. Little did you know that, number one, the pail was actually initially only 10 inches deep when it was filled 10 hours ago. Number two, the bucket of water was significantly affected by an outside force. Nine hours ago, a dog came and jumped into this pail and splashed half of that water out, leaving only a quarter of the pail full of water, three inches of water. The force of that dog hitting that bucket caused the leak hole to get bigger, changing the leak rate of the bucket. One hour ago, the dog's owner came out and filled that pail back to six and a half inches. You only arrived um, 30 minutes ago to begin your experiment, at which time the water level was 6 inches due to the leak. So, was your experiment a valid experiment? Or did your assumptions completely corrupt the result of your experiment? You assumed that the pail was completely filled 6.5 hours ago. In actuality, it was initially only 10 inches deep 10 hours ago. And along the way, it was partially refilled. So your experiment was essentially worthless in determining anything, since your assumptions were incorrect. Radiometric dating techniques fall victim to these same fallacies. All three of the aforementioned assumptions have been empirically shown to be unreasonable and for the same sort 
of reasons. And yet, of course, they're going to continue to use the dating techniques because how else can you get the date of anything except by divine revelation? But I say, hey, if that's what the evidence says, that's what the evidence says. But there's many Bible believers who have bought into the evolutionary propaganda on this, and they feel compelled to believe the idea that the universe really is old. They believe the dating techniques do prove this. So that in turn causes them to question the account of Genesis 1. If you turned in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and you read it, you're not going to get evolution out of that. You have to have inserted that into the text based on something else you've heard that makes you think it needs to be inserted into the text. So my question is, what have you heard that makes you think evolution needs to be inserted into the text? That's the question. Well, it's got to be the alleged evidences that we're already looking at. We've got tons of material that shows, hey, these are invalid. So why in the world would you feel compelled to even push this into the text anyway? But let's talk about this idea. You know, in some ways, the universe does look old. It does have an appearance of age. And we would argue that some of those things that make it look old are because a global flood would cause it to rapidly look old. But there's other things that, that are harder to explain by just a flood cannot be explained by a flood. Like, for example, how about the fact that light from stars that are billions of light years away are already to us, whenever it would have taken billions of years for that light to get to us in those stars. Some people look at that evidence, they say, well, that means the universe must be that old. Well, I look at Genesis chapter 1, and it tells us the answer to that question. It tells us the reason why the heavenly bodies were made, for signs, seasons, days, and years. You would expect the minute that God created them, you would have expected them to already have mature light. In other words, the light would have already been to us so that we could use them for those purposes. In the same way that Adam and Eve were created mature, you could, they could be communicated with. God could tell them, here's what I want from you. I want you to tend the garden. They weren't little fetuses or something in the womb. They were already created fully functional human beings. Um, the plants... Uh, the fruit, for example, on trees would have already been uh, mature. The trees would have already been bearing fruit. Why? Because how else could Adam and Eve have lived if they didn't have fruit to eat? So immediately, the moment that God created the universe, it would have already had the appearance of age. The creationist doesn't have a problem with that idea. In fact, we would argue that the rocks, the minute they were formed, could have already had parent and daughter elements in them because because God could have had other purposes for the daughter elements and the parent elements at the same time. God created the universe with needs, with purposes for everything that he made. So you wouldn't make the argument that everything initially had to be the parent element. I just don't believe that you'd get that out of the text. There's no reason to believe that idea. So caution has to be, has to be used Excuse me, when making any kind of assumptions um, with regard to dating things. Uniformitarianism is a fundamental assumption of evolutionary theory and its dating techniques. Ever since James Hutton suggested the idea that the present is the key to the past when examining geological features. The McGraw-Hill Dictionary of Scientific and Technical Terms says that uniformitarianism is the concept that the present is the key to the past, the principle that contemporary geologic processes have occurred in the same regular manner and with essentially the same intensity throughout geologic time and that events of the geologic past can be explained by phenomena observable today. So supposedly we can look at how things are going today, how things are decaying, the rates and so forth, and use that to determine things from the past. 
Well, we've already seen that's really an unreasonable thing to do, to assume, for example, that the nuclear decay rates have all, always been constant just because they're a certain rate today. That's a pretty grandiose assumption, but all evolution is based off of this single assumption. But let's test it for a moment and look at just a, two or three brief examples of, to show why uniformitarianism is unreasonable. Geologists say that water from 41% of the nation drains into the Mississippi River Delta. And as the Mississippi River rolls on down towards the Gulf of Mexico, dirt and sediment are picked up along the way and dumped into the Gulf of Mexico. Supposedly over thousands of years, the Mississippi River has deposited fresh water and sediment along the Louisiana coastline. Approximately 500 million tons of sediment are dumped into the Gulf of Mexico by the Mississippi River every year. Okay, so if uniformitarianism is true and geologic processes going on today are the same as they always have been, then let's do the math. If uniformitarianism is true, then the Gulf of Mexico should have long been filled up with dirt, with mud. Well, so they say, well, okay, so uniformitarianism doesn't work there. We need, that's what they have to do. But, but wait a minute. The entire evolutionary theory is based on uniformitarianism. And all over the place, it's shown to be inadequate as an assumption. On the other hand, catastrophism is a much more reasonable way to look at what we see going on in the geologic column. Most features in the earth were produced by the occurrence of sudden, short-lived worldwide events. Well, hey, guess what? If you start with that assumption in place, you're going to get totally different answers to these questions. And yet, who do you think has control of the textbooks? What you're going to hear about in the textbooks, young people, is uniformitarianism. And what it has to say. If uniformitarianism is true, hey, the universe is old. But if you actually start with catastrophism, which is supported by, by more and more of the evidence, by evolutionists themselves, coming out and recognizing, you know, catastrophism is actually causing all of our uniformitarianism, uh, our uniformitarian assumptions to be inadequate. Let's look at another example. Volcanic eruptions. The effects of volcanic eruptions and their mud flows in recent times have caused serious doubt in the minds of scientists over this idea of uniformitarianism. It's long been believed that the Grand Canyon was the product of millions of years of, of slow carving by the Colorado River. It's assumed uh, by geologists that the Colorado River has been rolling along as it does now for millions of years according to uniformitarian principles. On March 19, 1982, a small eruption at the summit of Mount St. Helens caused a massive mud flow. Within one day, a 20-mile-long, 140-foot-deep canyon was carved, shown here on the screen. Now, this completely destroys uniformitarianism again. If uniformitarianism is true, it should have taken tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years for this canyon to form. It's been called the Little Grand Canyon because it appears to be a 140th scale model of the Grand Canyon. Now consider the implications of that. If a canyon that's 140th of the Grand Canyon could be carved in one day, then couldn't it be the case that a global catastrophe that lasted 40 days could have caused the Grand Canyon to form? A catastrophe like the global flood in which the text says the fountains of the deep were broken up. How about another example? Petrification. For years, it's been assumed that the process of petrification is one that takes millions of years to complete. But more and more scientific evidence is coming to light, which proves that the rate of petrification 
can be significantly altered by catastrophic events. For example, in 2004, five Japanese scientists published their research on rapid petrification in the secular evolutionary journal Sedimentary Geology. They were studying mineral-rich acidic water from the explosion crater of the Tatayama volcano in central Japan. Water uh, comes over the edge of this volcano as a waterfall, and some wood had fallen in the path of this mineral-rich water. Now, the surprising discovery was that this wood had become petrified with silica after only 36 years as this water flowed over the wood. So they wanted to investigate this phenomenon further. So they attached fresh pieces of wood to the wire, and they put it in the water. After only seven years, the wood had turned to stone, petrified with silica. Wood petrification has occurred due to the nearby uh, volcanic activity as well. And using a powerful microscope, they found that silica petrification occurs in the same way that wood petrification occurred in the volcanic ash nearby this volcano. So again, clearly, uniformitarian assumptions when considering geologic phenomena causes major issues when trying to date the earth. So we've looked at the fossil record briefly, and we've looked at the dating techniques, two of the things that are used primarily as evidence for evolution, and we found that they really do not hold water. When am I supposed to be done? Does anybody know? Now? One minute. Hey, how about that for timing? You know, last night I went over, so I'm giving you one minute tonight. All right? Thank you for your attention.